Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Sports Forum podcast. I am Ken Reed, and I am your host. At Sports Forum, we try to take a fairly deep dive on a variety of sports issues. I'm also sports policy director for League of Fans, a sports reform project founded by Ralph Nader. Our mission at League of Fans is to fight for the principles of justice, fair play, equal opportunity, civil rights, safety, and civic responsibility in the world of sports. Yes, it's a tall order, but worth the fight. You can find some of our work at leagueoffans.org. Sports Forum is an ongoing discussion on a variety of topics, many of them public policy related. For the most part, we'll be talking about issues beyond the games themselves. You won't hear any talk about who this year's Super Bowl favorites are, which NBA coaches should be fired, or what trades certain Major League Baseball teams should make. Those can certainly be fun topics, but there are plenty of outlets for those types of discussions out there. During each episode of Sports Forum, we'll be examining a single sports issue, and we'll be doing it with a guest who has expertise on the topic at hand. The issues we talk about will range from brain trauma and concussions to Title IX and equal opportunity, and many in between. Our guests will come from all over the country and sometimes beyond and have a variety of sports-related backgrounds. So with that, let's get this episode started. Okay, I'm thrilled to have as our first guest on League of Fans Sports Forum podcast, Dr. Donna Lopiano. Dr. Lopiano is the president of Sports Management Resources, a consulting firm that services intercollegiate athletic departments. She is the former CEO of the Women's Sports Foundation, serving in that role from 1992 to 2007. She also was the University of Texas's director of women's athletics for 18 years and is a former president of the Association for Intercollegiate Athletics for Women. The Sporting News has regularly named her one of the 100 most influential people in sports. She is widely recognized for her Title IX expertise and her leadership in advocating for gender equity in sports. So welcome, Dr. Lopiano. Hey, thanks, Ken. Uh, I'd like to start with how you became passionate about, passionate about Title IX and other civil rights issues in sports. Well, uh, like most of us who are passionate, we're, we've been discriminated against at some point in our life and it flipped the switch. And so when I was about 10 years old and the, the best baseball player on my street, I went out for Little League Baseball and was told, even though I was drafted number one, that I couldn't play with my friends that wow. because, because I was a girl. And I cried for three months. My, my parents, God bless them, looked for you know, a team for me to play on. And the only opportunities for women at that time outside of school uh, were these industrial leagues, but you had to be workers age, you had to be 16 to play. So I didn't get a chance to you know, play outside of school until I was 16 years old and um, tried out for you know, a national championship. Ray Bestis Braquettes, a corporate sponsored team. Hmm. Yeah, interesting story. Yeah, yeah. What position did you play? Uh, well, I, when I played baseball with my friends, I was a pitcher. It took me a year to learn how to pitch upside down in softball. <laughs> so, uh, so I, I pitched. I played first, second, short. You know. Right. So, yeah. 
Uh, you served as CEO, as I mentioned, of the Women's Sports Foundation for 15 years, which was the sports foundation was founded by Billie Jean King. Um, what was it like working with Billie Jean King on the issue of equal opportunity in sports? Well, I think uh, whether it was working with Billie or what I consider to be um, the feminist leaders of our time during the 70s, 80s, and 90s, you know, the, the advent of the National Women's Law Center, uh, you know, the very strong position of the American Association of University Women and all of the women, the women's groups at the time, which if, if you recall, the 70s were the heart of the, the feminist movement and equal opportunity. Um, you know, Title IX was a frontispiece, but um, uh, whether it was Billy in sport or all of those other women in higher education or society at large, uh, boy, I felt like um, it was really a, a gift growing up among that kind of leadership because I was pretty young at the time and just, you know, looking at heroes. How did you get involved with them? Um, I, I was, um, when I, in 1975, when I became director of uh, women's athletics at the University of Texas. I was the first athletic director. That program got started because of Title IX. Uh, and one day, uh, the legal counsel for the Association for Intercollegiate Athletics for Women called me and said, hey, Donna, can you get a copy of the men's athletic budget at the University of Texas? Because you know the, the Senator from the state of Texas, John Tower, and uh, the president of the NCA, who was from the University of Texas, and Daryl Royal, who was the athletic director, head football coach at Texas, were trying to amend Title IX to exclude football and basketball. And there would be hearings at Congress, and they had no data in terms of the difference in expenditures on men and women. So they called me with that question, and I was 29 years old, right? <laughs> naive as they come. And I said, oh, sure. I know Daryl Royal. I'll run across campus. So I ran across campus. Daryl was on his way to practice. I said, Daryl, can I have a copy of your budget? And he said, oh, sure. Ask Betty, you know, my secretary. And I said, okay, thanks, Daryl. Went in, asked Betty. Betty gives me the budget. <laughs> I, put, I put it in an envelope because we didn't have internet or anything you know, scanning at that time. And I kind of forgot about it. And about three days later, uh, I got another call saying, oh my God, you got it. Do you have a copy of your budget? I said, of course, it's one page. <laughs> my budget is $90,000. His was about, you know, at the time, probably four and a half, five million, right? And, uh, and then they said, will you come to Washington to testify before this committee? And, and this is how naive I was. I said, my first reaction was, wait till I tell my mother and father, they're going to be so proud. They'll probably want to come see me. <laughs> I didn't even think, hey, Lopiano, you might lose your job <laughs> because of this, right? So that's how I got involved and eventually, uh, uh, you know, became a member of the board of directors. And it's uh, kind of amazing. Yeah, yeah, it was. It was great fun, actually. I, I'm kind of shocked that Daryl Royal just handed it right over to you. Well, no, he was, Daryl was a very kind and simple human being. His attitude was, I have my hands full. I'm trying to coach a football team. I have to raise money for my own program. I don't want to have anything to do with women's athletics. I, I want 
in fact, his, his position was that the uh, physics department should be funding women's athletics at the University of Texas because they got uh, federal money from the Department of Defense. And, you know, what was the penalty for violation of Title IX? You would lose your federal funds. So he said, I think the physics department should uh, fund you. So he was responsible for our having a separate athletic department for women. And I reported direct to the president, and so did he, which was at the time something that happened in only eight or nine schools in the country. And I don't think anybody would have envisioned that uh, the guys who are running sports would cede control of women's athletics to the women, right? So it was an accident of history, but he was really, um, you know, a pretty good guy. Well, it, it didn't come across that way in the book, Meat on the Hoof. As I <laughs> yeah, it's, you know, it's fascinating. Uh, I'll never forget just a couple of weeks after I was there, he said, Donna, you got a minute? You know, come down to my office. He introduced me to this guy. He says, this guy wanted to start a scholarship in my name. I said, you know who needs it? Women's athletics. Would you let him give you uh, $100,000? <laughs> that was more than my budget, right? Yeah. Yeah, but he was he was simple in that way, you know, which was interesting. And and meat on the hoof is a, an avid description. Whether you call it plantation system or meat on the hoof, it's an uh, it's an accurate description of Division One football programs today. It, it's not just Daryl Royal. It's um, you know, lots of folk taking advantage of a, a majority minority population to make big money. Yeah. Even, even to the point of ignoring COVID and bringing him back on campus. Um, it's not, it's not a pretty picture. No, it's not just a bunch of students getting together to play a little football. Yep. Yep. That, that book, Meat on the Hoof, was uh, eye-opening for a lot of people who had this fantasy view of what college athletics was all about. And it showed the reality in a lot of ugly ways. Yeah, and there were there were more Friday night Friday night lights was you know uh, another example of, of that. I, there have been a series of really great exposés in terms of uh, how the sausage is made in intercollegiate athletics. Um, it's um, an embarrassing marketplace. You know, I was there for you know eighteen years, and it, it really is something to behold. And, and then today you add in what we know about concussions and brain trauma and what's going on. And uh, that's a whole nother topic, but uh, yeah, it's definitely uh, a, a strange world in college athletics sometimes that the general media doesn't report on to a great degree. Well, because the media is, is like college athletes fearful that if they don't say the right thing, then the locker room will be closed. The inside story will be closed to them. So, and I, I have no sympathy in, in terms of the irresponsibility and the dereliction of duty of the media. I think they've, they've become cheerleaders as opposed to investigative reporters. Well, that leads me back to, into a thought I had. It seems like part of the reason that most Americans feel we've won the battle against gender in inequity in sports is that the media hasn't done a good job of letting people know about the data on Title IX compliance and how many schools aren't complying with the law or even very close. 
what do you think the role the media should be in this regard in terms of letting the American public know the discrepancies in terms of opportunities for female athletes and budgets for female athletes, et cetera? Because uh, I, I talk to people all the time that think, hey, that was a problem back in the 70s, but it's fixed and it's, it's equal out there for girls and boys, men and women now, and it couldn't be further from the truth. Sure, it's all about data. Um, and the closing down of data. Sure, you know, certainly the NCA is not publishing the truth. And it's not publishing what the participation rates are between men and women and pointing out that we're not even close to uh, equity. You're still looking at probably in colleges and universities, uh, women are getting about 3.4 uh, million, uh, I'm sorry, at the high school level, women, girls are getting 3.4 million opportunities to play. Boys are about 4.6 million. So girls haven't yet reached the participation numbers of boys in 1972, which was 3.6 million. Mm -hmm. So you're still looking at 80 to 90% of all schools making progress. Yes, from nothing to 40% is progress. But what's equality? It's 49% at the high school level, 50% at the high school level. It's almost 56% at the college level. And we're not close to those kinds of, uh, of numbers yet. Um, and that's just participation numbers. The, the situation is worse in terms of scholarships. Situation is worse in terms of recruiting dollars. The situation is worse in terms of promotion uh, of women's sports. You look at uh, college athletics now and you see um, athletic departments putting all their eggs into two baskets, men's basketball, men's football. And you see what happens when um, you know, COVID comes around, nobody's calling for women's soccer to reconvene or women's swimming to reconvene. Uh, we're just talking about football and basketball. And now that name, image and likeness, kids going out and exploiting uh, monetizing their own names, images, and likenesses, getting into endorsement contracts. Now we're really going to see the discrepancy where institutions have not developed the brand of their women athletes to the same extent that they've developed heroes uh, because of television exposure and um, advocating for you know Heisman trophies. Uh, they're doing that for men, but they're not doing it for women. So. You know, Title IX is far from over here. There's still a lot to be fought over and it will continue to be fought over. I find it interesting that many Title IX opponents believe Title IX hurts men's sports and cuts opportunities for males. But from what I've seen, that's basically a myth in terms of participation rates. Uh, it's a, but that, that, was always, that was always the fear when Title IX passed all the naysayers, including Daryl Royal, who was then president of the American Football Coaches Association, the, the headlines across the country were Title IX and women's athletics would be the death of big time football. It was predicted to be a zero sum game. If you gave two opportunities for, for women, it would have to be minus two opportunities for men. And it never was that way. Women's, men's, uh, athletic opportunities at the high school and college level have continued to grow. In the last 10 years, more opportunities have been added for male athletes, the overrepresented sex, than for female athletes, the underrepresented sex. So men's sport continues to grow. 
gratefully, women's sport opportunities continue to grow. But guess what? That's capitalism. Everything grows, right? Um, and so the, the myth of a zero-sum game is uh, stupid to believe. Yeah, and, and it's true while some male participation in some sports wrestling and baseball has dropped since the advent of Title IX, it's gone up in other areas like lacrosse and soccer. So overall, the number of male intercollegiate athletes is higher today than in 1981. The reality is that the enemy of Olympic sports or minor sports, as some people call them, is actually men's football and basketball, not women's sports. Yeah, and people have to realize that uh, when you look at sports getting added and dropped. It happens all the time because some sports are popular, others aren't. In the mid 1970s, the most popular sport for women was gymnastics. You can't even see a women's gymnastics program anymore. The, uh, one of the more popular sports for men was wrestling. You hardly see a, a wrestling program anymore. Um, but lac lacrosse and soccer were not even played in the 1970s. So you always see a dropping and an adding of sports as part of this, you know, sports culture. Um, but you're right in the, the sense that everybody jumps to blame Title IX whenever you see a men's sport being dropped. Every time you see that sport being dropped, the first place you should look is where's the money going? It ain't going to add a new sports for women. It's not going to Title IX compliance. It's going into men's football or men's basketball to fuel the insatiable arms race. Yeah, I mean, some of these college football staffs have 20 assistant football coaches these days. It's amazing. You uh, just go, go online and look at the directory for a school like uh, a Penn State or let's say even a University of Texas. Um, the last time I looked at the Penn State staff directory in athletics, um, there were 29 assistant athletic directors. <laughs> so, you know, you know, there is so much waste in terms of personnel. There's so much waste in terms of lavish and unnecessary salaries for nonprofit tax exempt institutions. So much waste on lavish facilities so that the coach can continue to make seven and eight figure salaries by recruiting 17 year olds who like the, the pool room or mm -hmm or the, the whatever, you know, the sleeping pod in the locker room. Um, we, we are misusing funds. And the reason why schools aren't going broke, and this is what the public doesn't you know, understand, uh, is that athletic programs, 98.4% of all athletic programs are subsidized by their institutions, either by institutional general funds, which are tuition dollars, or by mandatory student activity fees, which are designated for athletics. And both of those funding sources have a backstop, which is $130 billion in federal higher education grant money that goes to, um, that fuels student loans or non-repayable Pell Grants. So when you look at the all-time highs of student debt leaving college, um, when you look at tuition reaching all time highs, uh, athletics is contributing to that rise and that debt. And nobody's pointing a finger at athletics. Hmm. 
Of all the arguments that critics raise in their opposition to Title IX, I think the most farcical is that females aren't as interested in sports as males. And I'm going to read a little excerpt from my book, um, How We Can Save Sports, a Game Plan, on my chapter on Equal Opportunity. It's given the phenomenal increase in sports participation by females since Title IX's enactment, the charge that women aren't as interested in sports is simply absurd on its surface. The facts show that female high school athletic participation has increased by approximately a thousand percent and female college athletic participation has increased by approximately 600% since Title IX was enacted. Those figures are probably a little more today. As Valerie Bunnett, a Title IX consultant points out, women aren't born less interested in sports, society conditions them. A federal district court put it this way, Title IX was enacted in order to remedy discrimination that results from stereotype notions of women's interests and abilities. Interest and ability rarely develop in a vacuum. They evolve as a function of opportunity and experience. I think that pretty much hits the nail on the head. Yeah, and two points there. Um, you know, you're absolutely right in terms of what you say, but the fact of the matter is that neither high school nor college athletics can fully um, you know, fulfill the interest of boys or girls, males, females. Um, they don't have enough money to offer big enough programs to, you know, think about it. There are these 8 million boys and girls roughly playing high school sports. There are only 600,000 college sports opportunities. Who wouldn't want a scholarship to go to college, right? Mm -hmm. um, but we don't, we don't have the financial wherewithal. So when we choose to offer a sport, we choose to discriminate on the basis of sex, right? We're either gonna offer one for boys or offer one for girls. And there's plenty out there because the second point is I've never ever heard of a school hiring a coach, giving them a budget, um, you know, saying, you know, go put this team together. And the coach coming back saying, I can't find anybody who wants to play. I've never, I've never heard of that situation. And yeah. so it, it's, it's another myth. Well, for, for decades after Title IX was passed in 1972, uh, the gap between males and females in terms of opportunities was narrowing, but in the last decade plus, the gap is actually widening again. What, why do you think that is? Because the Department of Education is in, enforcing the law and so there are only two ways you get these big bureaucracies to change. Uh, one is through lawsuits. That's very expensive. It's very contentious. You're really not going to see dad suing for his daughter um, uh, un unless the sport is dropped and she has nothing to lose. He's not going to sue for equal treatment because, you know, he's afraid that they'll retaliate against her. So uh, those lawsuits are few and far between, and the public doesn't realize that the plaintiff always wins. Um, but the other thing that could change the system is uh, an embarrassing investigative press. If you um, kind of drag the brand of the university in mud, the university doesn't like it, they're more likely to change. And you've already mentioned that the press is pretty chicken in that regard. Yeah. So, so we're, we're in this place unless Congress steps up to the plate. And I think they're getting ready to do this reform intercollegiate athletics. Um, we're not going to see a faster pace toward Title IX compliance. 
The Office of Civil Rights, as I understand it, is charged with enforcing Title IX, but their efforts seem to be pretty lax, as you kind of touched on. Why, why do you think there isn't stronger enforcement? Well, it, um, you've got 2,000 uh, athletic programs across the country to give you some idea of the random investigations that the Department of Education might undertake if they do five or 10 a year. That's, um, you know, that's more than you can expect. What did exist and what was beginning to be effective was the, the NCAA certification program, which looked at gender equity as one of its um, uh, accreditation type uh, evaluations. And it was a once every 10 year process. And when the NCA realized that the data obtained by those on-campus certification committees uh, was being used uh, to bring lawsuits against institutions, they shut the program down and they replaced it with a, a, a dashboard assessment that is provided to college presidents and is unavailable publicly. Mm. So uh, it's, um, uh, like I like I said, the NCA is not going to help out on this. You know, the NCA could easily uh, command Title IX uh, compliance by simply saying it's a continue a, a condition of membership that you comply with Title IX. I'm close to that. No, there's there's no way the NCA is going to do that. I mean, they could also do Kentucky at one point. Uh, at the high school level, uh, required Title IX compliance for high school sports, and the penalty for that was neither your boys or girls team um, would be eligible for state championships. So those, either of those two incentive-based systems or disincentive-based systems would have, would have worked, but the governance associations are controlled by athletic directors who are 80 to 85% uh, male, white male, um, and who are you know, bound and determined to kind of emphasize football and basketball for guys. Um, so the, the, the stars aren't lined up for any uh, reignition of Title IX reform. And the Department of Education has moved on to, and rightfully so, moved on to sexual harassment and sexual assault, which is um, you know, a, a belated approach to a, another long-time problem. What, are the, what do you think our country's biggest challenges when it comes to Title IX and equal opportunity in sports in terms of turning this tide? Well, I, I think we've made great progress uh, in terms of women's sports, and we need to close the deal uh, in terms of, of gender equity by uh, doing one or two of the things I've just said to you, making Title IX compliance a condition of national sport governance membership. Um, that would be the easiest way to do it. I think there are bigger fish to fry uh, for men and women in terms of college sport reform. And you mentioned, you know, at the beginning of the program, you mentioned the importance of concussion. Um, I, I can't emphasize it enough that the public does not realize that institutions are getting away with murder in terms of not taking responsibility for the medical expenses or well-being of college athletes. Um, in order to try out for a team, uh, you have to bring your parents' insurance policy or your student insurance policy to the athletic department in order to even try out. 
And so that permits the athletic department to kind of take a secondary policy and still charge the parents for um, you know, specialty or uncovered fees. So they're not taking basic responsibility. And then there is no long-term disability insurance for athletes. Um, for instance, the NFL has a billion dollar trust set aside for 10 to 20 years from now when um, former professional football players start experiencing dementia and Parkinson's, and, uh, Alzheimer's. There is no such fund set aside for uh, college athletes. If an athlete needs to get their knees or shoulders replaced 10 to 20 years from now, now there's nothing there for them um, because this labor force for college sports is are not employees. There's no workers comp. There, there, there is no collective bargaining agreement. There is no way for the athletes to exercise power to get those kinds of benefits, uh, which is why all, all the money is going into the back pockets of coaches because they have a, a, a rigged marketplace where they're the labor Court, uh, the labor force cost is artificially capped uh, with the, the cost of an, uh, an educational scholarship. Um, so we, we have a long way to go in terms of protecting the health and well being of college athletes. We have a long way to go for football players and basketball players who are not being given what they were promised a college education. They're being specially admitted to colleges and universities, which means their academic conditions have been waived. Uh, they're, they're not able to compete in the classroom, so they get pushed into friendly professor courses or easy or less challenging majors, uh, and they leave without the really important promise of a college education that they can translate into a livelihood. Um, and if they're not part of the 1.3% that makes it into pro sports, they're up a creek. Yeah. Uh, I'd like to kind of touch base on the benefits of Title IX for women. Everyone just thinks of it as a as some sports benefits and maybe physical fitness benefits. But there's been a lot of studies done on uh, Title IX and, and the research, research has shown that girls who participate in sports have stronger self-images, lower levels of depression and suicide, less likely to smoke and use illicit drugs and get pregnant. In college, additionally, they are more likely to get better grades, graduate from high school, go on to college, and attain high school high skill level occupations in the labor force. The number of female executives in the business world is often tied directly by some of those executives to their participation in sports. So this is a, a societal thing with benefits much beyond the athletic playing fields. Um, you've just given a great summary of what the research tells us. And that's why, you know, parents are so uh, fascinated with athletic programs. They really do the same thing for boys and girls, and they don't want their daughters treated differently than their sons. If all of these benefits accrue to those who play sports, what is sports? It's being introduced into how corporations work, how these teams work, how you, um, you get together with you know, people you don't know and you have to respect and you have to depend on each other uh, and you learn to play in the sandbox and you learn to be a leader and you, and you, uh, you, you realize what confidence is. Um, 
you become stronger for it. You're less likely to get sexually assaulted because you are stronger and more confident. You don't succumb to a stereotypical, you know, weak role of female. So, you know, you know you've given them a good summary. You talked a little bit earlier about the discrepancy in female athletic administrators. Uh, that's kind of a hidden problem in terms of inequities in athletics. Why do you think there's such a gap between male athletic administrators and female athletic administrators still today, almost 50 years after Title IX? Athletics is very out of sync with uh, what's happening in higher education in America. Um, in higher education in America, our student bodies have gone from uh, 85% white non-Hispanic in 1976 to around 55% today. Uh, when you look at our sports programs, in terms of the participants themselves, only, only football, basketball, indoor and outdoor track have majority minority players. Uh, the rest of our sports are predominantly white and employment follows. Um, in 1976, you look at faculty, you look at administration, 85% uh, uh, white, non-Hispanic male. You look at intercollegiate athletics today, that's exactly what it looks like where that's not what the faculty looks like. That's not what administration looks like in higher education. The, uh, when you look at the, the, the formerly all-male cultural institutions of sport, the military, politics, religion, um, you're looking at the last gasp of you know, male domination holding on to power and they're not letting go. Um, and it's as bad for persons of color, male and female, as it is for women. So you're looking at 80% of all coaches being uh, white males. You're looking at uh, the top 10 positions in an athletic department still being 85% you know, white male. Um, and is, this is not gonna change and unless this data gets out there and people are uh, aghast, and, uh, unless we see the realization of the current first blush of student and parent advocacy in intercollegiate athletics. Um, that advocacy has not ever existed before. And it's been brought out by COVID, a combination of COVID and Black Lives Matter, and we're gonna be healthier for it. Uh, you know, athletics is gonna to have to beat the same drum as remedying, um, you know, societal um, underrepresentation of, um, you know, Blacks in the US. Very good. Well, um, I thought I'd end this uh, podcast and I appreciate your time but uh, the white males in the NCA haven't really always been very progressive in their thinking, but I did come across a quote from former NCA President Miles Brand that I thought was excellent, uh, whether he truly believed it or not is another thing, but Miles did. It was such a shame for him to die prematurely because he was, he, he was on the right path. Well, that's good to that hear. was tremendous loss, yeah. His quote was, athletics participation is of value to both men and women. Let us not, let us leave no one behind because we think sport participation is the right of one gender over another. Or one race over another, yeah. Right. Well, thanks uh, so much for your time.
Uh, you've been a great pioneer in this area and a lot of females and males who want a better society have owe you a lot of gratitude and appreciate your time and keep up the good work. Ken, the feeling's mutual. Um, you know, what you're doing is uh, is really appreciated and I'm glad you're still still kicking in the world of advocacy. Well, thank you. Thanks again. And we'll talk to you next time, folks. Thank you for listening to this episode of League of Fans Sports Forum Podcast. Make sure to subscribe, rate, and review the podcast. You can follow Sports Forum and get information about episodes on Facebook at Sports Forum Podcast. And be sure to go to LeagueOfFans.org to find our latest work on contemporary sports issues. Remember, anyone can be a sports change agent. If you see something in the world of sports that could be better than it is, get involved. Whether that means with the local youth league or at the national level with a major sports public policy issue, you can make a difference. Steve Jobs, the co-founder of Apple, once said, the ones who are crazy enough to think that they can change the world are the ones who do. So the next time you see an opportunity to enhance the positives or mitigate the negatives in sports world, go ahead and get a little crazy. Until next time, take care.